Let's take our Bibles this evening. We'll go to James chapter 1, all right? James chapter 1 for tonight. And uh, I'd like to start a new series of study, at least on Sunday evenings. And uh, for this series of study, I would like to look at this title. They'll all be under this umbrella, under this title. But it's this title of series is this, Things That Just Don't Make Sense, all right? Things that just don't make sense. Now, there are a lot of things today that don't make sense, you know, like rooting for any other baseball team other than the Atlanta Braves. That just don't make sense, you know? Amen. All right, that's the, that, wait a minute, time out. Goodness. I got more amen saying that than what I said all this morning. Something's wrong with y'all. Huh. Man, a bunch of carnal goats out there. No, I'm just kidding. But some things just don't make sense, you know. Now, there's some phrases we say in conversations with individuals that uh, they just don't really make sense. And as I was doing a little study on, on that, there's actually a word for that. And the phrase that has a title for that, and it's this. Those phrases that really don't make sense are called nonsensical idioms. Anybody ever heard of that? couple of you, the rest of you just learned something, all right? But uh, they're called nonsensical idioms. Now, for example, nonsensical idioms are phrases like this. And you've probably said this. I know I have. But here's one of them. Needless to say, when you stop for a moment and think about that phrase, that phrase don't make any sense. Because if it's needless to say, then why'd you say it, you know? It, that's a nonsensical idiom. Here's another one. Just beating around the bush. Now, I say this a lot, okay? That does not mean literally that I take a stick and walk around a shrub beating it, all right? That is not what that means. Beating around the bush, you know this. It means that if you're failing to get to the point of the conversation. Here's another one. That person just don't cut the mustard. Now, does that mean he literally takes mustard, squirts it out of a bottle, and cuts it with a knife? no. That's not what it means. That just means he's not good enough, okay? Here's another one. To get that stain out, you've got to use a little bit of elbow grease. Now, if your elbow leaks grease, that's weird, okay? You need to go see a doctor, okay? But that's not what that means. That just simply means putting the extra work into something. Here's another one. We use this a lot. Many people use it. I've heard it a lot. I've even said it. I just got to get my ducks in a row. Does that mean you go get ducks and line them up straight in a row? No. That it simply means that you get your affairs in order. So some of these phrases we say, of course there's many others, and I'm sure you're thinking of some while I'm talking. But some of these phrases we say, when you think about them literally at least, it just don't make sense. just don't make sense. And as I read, read my Bible, and I'm sure you, as you read your Bible... You can come across phrases and even principles that we find in the Word of God that, listen, they just, in a literal sense, just don't make sense. That just don't make a whole lot of sense. And some of those phrases and principles can be like these, all right? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. And the Bible says, Jesus speaking, By saying to you, love your enemies... Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I don't know about you, but loving your enemies, you know, those individuals who don't like you, those individuals who hate you, who want to do you harm, and maybe would enjoy doing you harm, those kind of enemies, right? 
Loving those type of enemies just doesn't make sense. But the principle is taught here of love and pray for enemies. How about this one? In Romans chapter 12, verse 21, it says this, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now again, in our natural mind, again, this doesn't really make sense. Because with our natural mind, we want to fight fire with fire. We want to return evil with evil. Meaning, you're going to punch me, guess what? I'm going to punch you back, okay? I was reminded, I was reminded of a preacher who said to a man who really wanted to beat this preacher up. The preacher said, look, I'm going to give you two swings. The man looked at him and said, two swings? But I thought the Bible says when you get hit on one cheek, you turn the other. And the preacher said, you're exactly right. But after that turning the cheek thing, the Lord gives no further instruction. You got two swings. I like that, I think. He's being very literal biblical, I guess. But, uh, but anyway, but re- re- returning evil or, or not overcoming evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good, really, in our natural mind, just doesn't make sense. Here's another one. Mark chapter 10, verse 43 through 44. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Whosoever will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Now, again, this doesn't make a lot of sense, especially in our world, in our society today. You see, our world would teach the one who rules and leads does not serve or minister. This is not what a boss does. He doesn't serve. He doesn't minister. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yet, with principles, the same of servant leadership. And of course, there'll be many others we can see and will see as we study this series together of things that don't make sense. And today, I would like to look at this one. It's found in James chapter number one. We're going to read verses one through five in just a moment and see another phrase in principle that when you look at it, just on the onset at least, doesn't make sense. But hopefully after we look at it, hopefully after we study it, hopefully after we apply it, it'll make perfect sense. But it's found in James chapter 1. Look at it with me in verse 1 through 5. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now, would you agree with me that trials, testings, troubles, storms, whatever other synonym you want to use for trials, they are not pleasant. They are are not fun. They are very tough and can be very difficult and, listen, not joyous at all. And if it were up to me and you, I think you would agree with this, if it was up to us, we would want to live in a very much trouble-free environment. We want to live with no difficulties, no trials, and live with all comfort as possible. Anybody would agree with me on that this evening? Anybody? All right, good. Let's make sure we're on the same page. Of course, we'd want to live in full comfort with no troubles and no trials. And since that's what we would desire, why would Pastor James say in verse number 2, look at it with me again, when he says, Count it all joy when you fall, <clears throat> when you fall in diverse temptations. Why in the world 
Would he say something like that? Pastor James, that don't make any sense. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Not temptations here, by the way. It's not temptations as in tempting us to sin, but rather as in trials, troubles, tribulation, testings, those kind of things. Trials, all right? That's what he's getting at. Why would we count it a joyful thing when we find ourselves in trials? That just doesn't make sense. Well, let's consider that this evening of our first of the series of That Don't Make Sense is Count It All Joy When You Fall in Diverse Temptations. Let's pray together, all right? Father, again, we thank you for your goodness and your love, and I pray you to help us to truly make sense of this wonderful truth in Scripture of truly as we find ourselves from time to time, seasons of life, different trials of life, to, as we find ourselves in those to really count it or consider it, to change our perspective on the matter and count it all joy because you have a great work ahead through those times of life. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So as we consider this phrase this evening, and his context, number one, consider this, okay? Consider, number one, the audience to whom James, Pastor James here, is writing. Consider the audience, all right? Now, James makes it perfectly clear when he says this in verse number two of whom he's writing to. Look at it again, verse number two. What's the first two words? I didn't, I didn't hear you. Let's try again. All right, here we go. The first two words of verse number two is my brethren. That's right. My brethren, okay? It's interesting to me as you read and study the book of James. James himself uses the phrase my brethren or the word brethren. He uses it 19 times in only five chapters, all right? So please know when you read the book of James, he is primarily writing to believers. He is writing to save people, writing to people who know Jesus as their Savior. And, and primarily at this particular time in the first century context of James, he is writing primarily to save believers who are Jewish. Again, that's why he says that in verse number, verse number 1. He talks about the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. He's talking about Israel, Jewish people, but Jewish believers, all right? Because at this time in the first century... The church would have been made up primarily of Jewish believers, thousands of them. Because be reminded, how many were saved the day of Pentecost? 3,000. How many were saved later on a couple chapters down the road at the temple? 5,000, besides, besides men and women, all right? So all these individuals, thousands and thousands and thousands of believers in the church at this moment primarily were Jewish individuals. But understand something. He is writing to Christians. He is writing to believers. And that's important. Why? Because truly, it's the believers that can find joy in trials. Because understand something. Those that don't know Christ can't find any joy in the trials they face in life. Yes, God makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. We all, no matter if you're saved or not, we all find trials and tribulations in life. But it's the believers that can find joy through them. So number one, take note of this. Take note of the audience. James is writing. He's writing to believers. And then number two, I want you to take note of the atmosphere at this time, okay? Understand at this time in history, the church has grown rapidly. 
The church is growing very, very fast. And when the church grows and multiplies, I want you to know something. The devil hates it. When God is doing a great work, the devil hates it. When God's work is going forward, the devil hates it. When the gospel is going forward, the devil hates it. So the enemy at this moment was about to unleash a host of horrendous fiery darts at these young believers in this young church during the first century. So understand, at this very moment in history, the writing of the book of James, there was a cruel persecution taking place. And during the first century attack on believers, much of it would come from the hands of the Roman leaders, such as Nero and Domitian during the first century. And as we've studied different books of the New Testament, books of the Bible throughout the past year or so, a couple of years, we have described... Over time, we've described the cruel dealings the believers face, especially at the hand of Nero. Uh, you remember, at the hand of Nero, believers would face being skinned alive. I can't imagine that. But they would be filleted alive. I can't imagine. But also, we, we know that the history tells us that Nero would impale believers upon a pole, put some kind of uh, pitch on them, and light them on fire. Why? Just to keep Nero's parties, drunken parties, lit at night. He would light them on fire. Light them on fire. And then he would also do this. He would, he would do this. He would take the believers into the Colosseum and release starving lions. He'd starve the lions for a couple weeks at a time. Release starving lions to attack and rip them to shreds in the Colosseum just for sport understand something Nero is a cruel man and this was leadership that these people are under this was the president if you will that these individuals were under they were dealing with a cruel man but also other cruel Roman dictators and Roman rulers at the time as I was looking into the persecutions of the first century I found it interesting some of the names and other ways that believers are believed at least believed to have suffered and died during this time I read where it said among the numbers, uh, or numerous rather, numerous martyrs that suffered during the persecution was Simon Peter. It is said that he himself was crucified, and history seems to think that he was crucified upside down. Again, this would be, be believed that he was crucified under the ruler Domitian. It is said that Timothy, Timothy in the Bible, which was the, the son of Paul, or the, the son of the faith uh, by, of Paul. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus during this time, the first century, and where he led the church until 97 AD. But it was during this time frame, pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagogan. And Timothy, meeting the procession coming down the road, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in a dreadful manner that he died of the injuries just a couple of days later. It is said that during his first century, no Christian once brought before the tribunal of a Roman province would be exempted from punishment without first renouncing his religion. Meaning this, you're a believer, you're in trouble, you came before the court, the only way you're getting out, whether you're innocent or not, the only way you're getting by and getting out of this is if you renounce your faith in Christ. If you don't, you're dead, no matter if you're innocent or not. That's what would happen. Also, there was a variety of fabricated tales during this time that was composed in order to injure the believers. Such was this, that if famine, pestilence, or earthquakes afflicted any of the Roman provinces, guess who got the blame for all of that? Christians. 
They blame the Christians for all the wrongdoings, whether it was supernatural or not. They got the blame for it all. History even says many of the believers were tortured for their faith. It is believed that Antipas would have been considered the pastor of the church at Pergamos in the first century. You can find that church there in the book of Revelation. But it was after he was captured, he was killed by using this, the brazen bull. Now, have you ever heard of that? Some of you have heard of that because we've studied that a little bit as we went through the churches, seven churches of Revelation. We looked at this torture device, all right, as we looked at the church at Pergamos. But one commentator said this about the brazen bull. They would take the victim place that individual inside this brazen bull. They would tie him in such a way that his head would go into the head of the bull. Then they would light a huge fire under the bull, of the belly of the bull. And as the fire heated the bronze, the person inside of the bull would slowly begin to roast to death. And as the victim began to moan and cry out in pain, his cries would echo throughout the pipes in the head of the bull. So it seemed to make the bull come to life. Even in the midst of the flames, it is said the elderly Bishop Antipas died praying for his church. Again, the year, history says, is A.D. 92. Many believe that Antipas would have been martyred as a human sacrifice inside this brazen bull. Look, this is the kind of things that were going on in believers in the first century in this area, around this time frame. Now, I say all of this to say all that to say this, the atmosphere of the audience that James is writing to would not have been a favorable atmosphere whatsoever. There was a horrendous persecution going on. And because of this persecution, that is why many of them had to run for their very lives. As James puts it this way, look again at verse number 1, James 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, which here it is, which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now the word here scattered is, is the Greek word dispora. All right. It's where we get our English word disperse from. So these Jewish individuals, these believers that James is writing to have been dispersed from their land. They have been scattered throughout all other Gentile regions and were no longer in their hometown of Jerusalem where pastor James is believed to be the pastor of the first church, first Baptist church in Jerusalem. I don't know if it's a Baptist church or not, all right? But the church, they're in Jerusalem, okay? But it's these individuals that have been scattered abroad. They've had to leave his church. They've had to leave and flee for their lives. They've had to leave their families, leave their home, and escape with the very lives that they have. But it's to these people. To these people. And during this time, James says this. Hey, listen. Count it all joy. When you fall in diverse temptations when you find yourself in all kinds of different trials of life count it all joy guys now that took a lot of grace to listen to as much as it did to pen because understand as james is a pastor trying to encourage his flock who has had to flee for their very lives and no longer able to see them going to write to them listen that would have that took a lot of grace for him to do that as well but he's had to, he said this to count it all joy count it all joy but that don't make sense especially knowing the atmosphere and time frame which he's writing this during his persecution these people facing it that don't make sense what are you what are you doing what are you thinking count it all joy well 
Though on the onset, like I said, in the very beginning, it may not seem like it makes sense, but it can make sense in the trials that we face. When we notice this, number three, and lastly, when we notice the trials, number three, accomplishment. Accomplishment. Look at verse number three with me in verse number four, okay? Three and four, the Bible says this. Knowing this, he said, we know this. This is the truth. This is a fact. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. They give it to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So in these verses, we see, look, we see the purpose behind the trials that they were facing. And we can find the purpose even behind the trials we face. And the purpose is this, that we, you and me, as believers, may be perfect, entire, wanting nothing. Now, this perfect here does not mean a sinless perfection. It does not mean perfect as we think of it today, all right? It wouldn't be as like, like the wife looking at the husband and say, baby, you're, you're perfect. That's not exactly it, okay? I'm just, no? Okay, anyway. All right, that's not the perfect we're talking about, okay? That's not, so get that out of your mind. That's not what James is getting at. Rather, here's what James is getting at when he's saying, look, that you might be perfect and entire and wanting nothing, here, here's what you need to be and understand about per- perfect here. It's your maturity. It's your growth. Growing in the Lord. Your faith growing in the Lord. That's what he's getting at. That's the maturity that he's getting at. Understand God desires for us to grow. He desires to strengthen us. He desires for us to mature and grow in the faith. He wants us to grow in the areas that we are weak, in the areas that you have a struggle in, in the areas that I have a struggle in, in the areas that we need to improve. He wants us to grow and strengthen in our lives. Let me ask you a question. Anyone here, you are as strong as you need to be in the Lord. Anybody? Anybody here, your faith is as strong as it needs to be and it'll never get stronger. You're you're great. You are perfect in your faith. Anybody? (laughs) I know it's an unfair question because I know the answer to it. Because I've already asked myself that. We are all, all of us have a next spiritual step we need to take for the Lord and toward the Lord. We all have some growth. We all have some strengthening in one area or another. We all have an next spiritual step. But listen, oftentimes, oftentimes, the best way to accomplish this task of growing, of maturing, is this. It's trials. It's testings. For growing as believers, to accomplish the task of growing, we need to go through and sometimes have to go through testings, trials, and storms. Because those times of life, they have a way of stretching us, of growing us, of maturing us, of giving us spiritual endurance. 
Listen, no one that I know of, at least, naturally loves the trials of life. But we need them from time to time. And many times when we look at the Word of God, look into the Word of God, we can find believers find themselves in different trials and storms of life. And as God allows them to go through them, they learn something about themselves and about their Savior. For instance, take, take for instance, Jonah. Now, many of us know about the story of Jonah. God commanded him to go to Novena. Uh, Novena. <laughs> That's a good one. Novena. Yeah, uh-huh. Nineveh. All right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Hey, look, like I always say, if you can't laugh at yourself, let me do it for you, all right? (laughs) Nineveh. I'll never live that one down. Good night. I can hear it already. Okay. But But God told him, I'm a little tired. God told him to go to Nineveh and cry against it. But what did he do? He rebelled and disobeyed the commandment of the Lord and ran from the presence of God. And by the way, running from the presence of God is the worst thing you'd ever do. Running from God is the worst thing we could ever do as a child of God, running from Him. Because running from Him is like running on a treadmill. You're doing a lot of stuff but going nowhere, all right? Don't run from Him. What Jonah should have done is simply obey Him. But he ran from God. And as he's running from God, what happened? The Bible says that God sent a storm to wake up sleepy Jonah to his rebellious situation. That's what he had to do. So Jonah had to learn some things in this storm about himself. He needed to get right with God. He needed to repent of his rebellion and obey the Lord. He had to learn some things about himself. Storms have a way of accomplishing those type of tasks in our life. And he had to grow. I'm also reminded of other storms in Scripture. I'm reminded of the storms that disciples in the New Testament went through. They went through several. They went through different storms. The disciples, and what I'm thinking of at least, is, is when they, they went to a, a horrible storm in Mark chapter number 6. They faced a terrible storm after the feeding of the 5,000. And in that storm, the disciples learned a lot. They learned a lot, about again, about themselves. But they learned a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. They learned, once again, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. They learned, once again, that Jesus has all power in heaven and in earth. That Jesus has power over creation as he calmed the storm. That he can give peace in the midst of a storm. That he can bring peace in the midst of troubled times. But the biggest thing they learned was this. That God was going to use these situations to increase and stretch their faith. Because who was it that got out of the boat and walked on water? <laughs> Peter. There's only one other person that I know of in Scripture that walked on water other than Peter, and that was Jesus. But Peter said, if it be you, let me come out and walk on the water. Jesus said, come. And he did. His faith was growing, was beginning to grow even greater in the Lord. But what did he have to do? They had to go through the storm. They had to go through a trial. They had to go through it. And when they did, here's what the Bible says about them in Mark chapter 6, verse 51. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. They were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Their faith was beginning to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. For these guys in this moment, to get to this amazing, wonderful moment, they had to go through a storm, and the Lord is going to use it to grow them. And when I think of that, I think also of Job. 
Job said one day, and about the midst, about the middle of his testing, middle of his trial, he said these words in Job 23.10. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, meaning when he hath tested me, when he hath trialed me, I shall come forth as gold. Understand, Job had the right focus at this moment with his trial. With his trial, had the right focus. Even in the midst of this, he knew, listen, Job knew he didn't do anything wrong. His buddies, so-called friends, thought he did some kind of sin that he had committed to bring about all of this heartache and terrible things in his life. But Job knew he did nothing, nothing wrong. But in order, it was just in order for him to get to this place, he had to do this. He had to allow the Lord to make him better. He had to allow the Lord to grow him. He had to allow the Lord to make him like gold. Again, no one naturally loves and enjoys the trials of life. They are not pleasant. They're not pleasant to endure. They're not very charming at all. They don't feel good whatsoever. But know this, please know this. Trials are for our good. And after enduring them, those storms, those trials will shape us into what God wants us to be. And knowing that truth, knowing that God's going to use this for my good and for His glory, knowing that truth, that is where the joy can come in. That is when the joy can come in, knowing the Lord will use this trial. He's going to use it for help me to grow. He's going to use this for His glory. He's going to use this for my good. He's going to use it. Like I said this morning, there's nothing wasted with the Lord. He can use it. And when we count that, when we change our perspective to know God's going to use it, that's when we can put a smile on our face and count it all joy. When you change your perspective, when it comes to the trials of life, and count it all joy. You know, two of America's most famous landmarks are the Grand Canyon in Arizona and the Badlands in South Dakota. It is said that millions every year, millions of people will come to witness the breathtaking views of these beautiful places. Has anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon or the Badlands? Man, I, w- I would love to go one day. I would love to see it. I hear it's just absolutely breathtaking. I would love to go. But do you know how they got their beauty? How, how the how the Grand Canyon got its beauty and breathtaking views and how the Badlands got their breathtaking views. Do you know how they got it? Their beauty was shaped by harsh and violent forces of water and weather. And without going through these violent forces of weather, these two places that people enjoy that people come to every, millions of people come to every year without going through those storms, these two awe-inspiring places of beauty would not exist today. They had to go through it. They had to go through it. So again, be reminded, sometimes through the trials of life, God wants to accomplish more in your life and mine than we can imagine. But we need to, as James says, let patience have Perfect work in verse number four. And realizing and knowing that in the end of it will be more like gold, as Job said. In the end, it will be more, in the, more made into the image 
of Christ, knowing that, we can look at it with joy. We can look at it with a smile. We can endure it that way. So, verse number two again, my brethren, count it all joy. When you fall in diverse temptations, why? Why, James? Knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be, in, may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. That's why you can have joy when you fall into diverse temptations, different trials. Because knowing in the end, God's going to do a great work for you, in you, and for you. He's going to help you. So I know it don't make sense, but the end of it, the end of that trial, it'll make perfect 